Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in December of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, a conversation with Utah writer Jeff Metcalf. We're going to be talking about his new novel, Wacko's City of Fun Carnival. When Hugh Walker gets arrested by trying to buy a bottle of whiskey at the local liquor store, it sets in motion a chain of events only Jeff Metcalf can imagine. A high schooler, Hugh has already had one or two run-ins with the law, so to his young mind, he was on his way to juvie for sure. So when the opportunity arises to steal a cop car and escape, it seems like a good idea at the time. One crazy thing leads to another, and before we know it, Hugh has fled to Wyoming and joined Wacko's City of Fun Carnival. This uh, book is a novel. You might ask where the story comes from. Well, this is uh, written as a novel, but many and not all of these events actually transpired. Jeff Metcalf is an award-winning writer and teacher, as well as director of a nonprofit dedicated to granting underserved populations access to higher education. He lives in Salt Lake City, where he teaches literature and playwriting in the English department and the Honors College at University of Utah author previously of Backcast and uh, A Slight Discomfort as a Play uh, and uh, Requiem for the Living. And uh, Jeff Metcalf, welcome back to the program. Tom, it's great to hear your voice again and to be on your program. After that introduction, I think I should just hang up. I don't think it gets any better. That's right. It would make you sound really good, but it's it's all true. It's all true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, definitely, good to hear your voice here. Uh, so I definitely want to talk about uh, Wacko City Fun uh, Carnival. This is this is stuff that you actually lived. Uh, um, I want to talk about uh, slight discomfort first. Um, this is a play that you wrote about your prostate cancer. Um, the latest is uh, this is uh, has premiered in Denmark. It's going to tour some some theaters in Denmark. Yeah, absolutely right. It's it's very, very exciting. I think I had the pleasure of being on your show a couple of years ago when we talked about the play and, and another one of the novels that I'd written. But A Slight Discomfort is now traveling Denmark for a full year. Uh, it was picked up, and there was an international premiere that was held in March of this year, actually. And I had the luxury of going over there to see it performed in Danish, and it was like a New York uh, opening on Broadway. Uh, there were posters of the play on all the buildings, uh, across the streets, on marquees, on the sides of buses and trams. I felt like a celebrity. It was, it was just amazing. And it was performed in Danish, which I am not convinced is a language as much as I think it's a throat disorder. <laughs> I, I love language, but I couldn't pick up any Danish. It was in this great town uh, called Urhaus, but pronounced... <laughs> I just had no ear for it, but uh, it turned out to be a smashing hit. Uh, five newspapers gave it five stars out of five, and one gave it a six out of five which is pretty amazing. So it'll travel up until April of next year. Mm. That must have been quite the... Were you in the audience then? I was in the audience, and yeah. it's interesting because even though it was done in Danish, I'd gone to um, a couple of rehearsals, and it has such a rhythm, the play has such a rhythm, that I was able to tell exactly during the rehearsal where I was and what they had changed a bit. Uh, so the laughs came where the laughs were supposed to come. The uncomfortableness came 
where I expected people to be a little bit uncomfortable, it was magical. And then, um, you know, as life has a way of sort of serving it up to you, we returned home feeling my wife and myself and my kids, we felt like just, you know, royalty and came into our house and it had flooded while we were gone. Oh, boy. (laughs) So it's a great equalizer, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So that must have been, or I was going with that, you're not understanding the language, you're understanding the rhythm of the play because you wrote it and... uh, um, but but this is an opportunity for you to feel what the audience is feeling. Um, Absolutely. You make a good point there. And what was surprising to me was that um, the director and I, I got to meet the Jeff Met, the Danish Jeff Metcalf, uh, who was six foot three and, you know, beautiful, thick gray hair. And I'm five foot nine, actually probably five foot eight now and short and stocky and this guy was just disgustingly handsome but when i met him he said hello jeff metcalf it's nice to meet me and i started <laughs> laughing <laughs> i said you're the right guy to play this part but anyway i you know it was it was interesting being in the in the audience there and the director and both the actors said you know the the response we've gotten back from people is it seemed like this play was written by a danish playwright for us here so I don't think there's higher praise than that. They they took ownership of the play, and they have. I think we'd mentioned this before, but they have the highest rate of process uh, prostate cancer demographically in the world, and they're not sure why. So it really um, hit hit home, and I was very touched by the folks that talked to me afterwards. Hmm. What what were the comments you got? Well, the comments were that you know uh, you know this is something that. All of us have to see this is not a play, you know, just about prostate cancer. It's it's a play about cancer, and you know, almost every family is touched in one way or another by cancer. Um, the men said it was an emotional ride for them, um, and they said, you know, we're we're pretty guarded here with our emotions, but a number of us were um, on the verge of tears. It was. Uh, it was just a very honest portrayal of of one man trying to stay above ground. So I'll take all that as is you know the power of the written word. You have said in, in a way this is a conversation between you or the character playing you and the men in the audience. I mean it's everyone, but it's the men in the audience. One of the factors we talked about this before in a previous couple episodes. Um, men don't tend to talk about their health. Yeah, issues. you're right. And and the Danes, the, uh, I mean, the, they said they said the very same thing. I mean, I think it's universal. I think men are very guarded about their health and reluctant to talk about it. Um, I got to meet uh, a group of Danish men that are in a sort of prostate awareness organization, and got to visit with them and, and have a chat with them. And they were saying the same things. They said it's really, you know, once you can get men to open up, you know. Um, that's a big difference because it's kind of infectious. They said, you know, once we start to talk to each other, we talk, we realize it's not only about cancer, it's about our lives and about our families and about our worries in terms of the, you know, this particular disease, but it opens itself up to other conversations. So I think in, in many ways, Tom, this is probably the most important thing I've ever written. Well, no doubt about it, you know, because it gets men, you know, to have their you know, have the brave conversations about their health with each other. 
Why do you think it is that it, women tend to talk about health issues? And oh, I, I just think we're closer to the stone and rock. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. we're closer to cavemen. I think that, you know, I think, and this is crazy, that talking about your health issues, you know, men often think it's a sign of weakness, and it's absolutely not. It's just the opposite, you know. It's a sign of bravery to talk about your, you know. I mean, the more we can talk, the more we can help each other. And, you know, I was diagnosed, I'm going on 16 years now with prostate cancer, and I can't tell you over those years how many men I've met or had emails from saying, you know, I saw your play, you know, I read an article that you'd written about it, I went in and got myself checked, you know, and now I got my brother-in-law to do it. I mean, it's, I think it's kind of a chain, re- chain reaction. Mm. One little detail before, and, and I want a couple more items here, and then we'll, we'll sure. move on. Um, a little detail, you, I was reading an article, uh, an interview you gave to the Deseret News, um, and you talked about how in the urologist's office, so th- these would be men, patients, right? Right. Um, you're, you're drinking from a pink ca- cancer awareness yeah. uh, mug. That, that's an illustration. We still have ways to go, at least you know, culturally. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, I'm looking at the National Football League that, you know, has, you know, uh, a day dedicated to uh, women's breast cancer. And I'm thinking, you know, those men on those fields playing, you know, at some point in time will probably be affected by um, some issues with their prostates. And our research, we need more money for research. Uh, it's the second largest cause of death among men. And uh, we have very little money going into it. And I'm all about, you know, supporting, uh, you know, research funds and projects for breast cancer. My sister's a breast cancer survivor. And a number of my female friends are also breast cancer survivors. But we need to be doing the same thing. Men need to be doing the same thing from, for themselves, you know, and advocating for our own health. And I think that's the issue I'm most concerned with. And that's where I want to go next. Uh, you're, a, you're an example of this. I'm always struck by this when I talk to you. Uh, so here's a quote uh, that you gave to Deseret News. If you're told you're going to die in probably less than a year, most of us go, okay, and die in less than a year. And I think my combative sort of nature has kept me alive. Oh, absolutely true. I'm at, I'm at a point right now where my cancer um, is, is really aggressive again. I mean, you know, people just assume that um, I'm cured or I have it uh, under control, and I don't. I was on a clinical study for a year that just ended in October, and it worked for about a year. And uh, now, you know, my cancer's kind of returned at an alarming rate, and there's a study that I'll start at the end of November. But I'm also a thief. You know, my job is to steal as much time as I possibly can, buy as much time as I can. And, you know, this this might be the last study that I get a chance to see because there's really sort of nothing in the research world um, approved by the fed, federal FDA uh, that I can be on. So I'll start this, but I'm, you know, I'm very positive about it. You know, I know, I know that it, time is not on my side, but um, I will steal every second I get. And I try not to look at the disease as, you know, a terminal disease, but more as a chronic one mm. that can be managed. And you're very passionate about, um, you know, knowing the latest science. Uh, you don't take the doctor's word for it. You, you work in tandem with the doctor, being an advocate, as you said. 
Yeah, men need to do that. And I'm probably, well, I've become, you know, good friends with my doctors over the year, but I'm, I'm years, but I'm sure I was an annoyance. You know, okay, why would we do that? No, I'm I'm not certain that makes sense. So tell me again what your thoughts are. I mean, it was it's just that you have to it, you you have to ask those questions. And a lot of men friends that I've sent to the uh, Huntsman Cancer Center here because uh, it's a tremendous facility. I mean, they've become you know sort of in-house uh, advocates for themselves. And I think my doctors want to say, don't send us any more of those kind of guys. They drive us nuts, you know, and and. Uh, but you have to be, whether it's cancer or any other, you know, uh, chronic disease or disorder, you have to ask the tough questions. Mm. One more question about a slight discomfort. Of course, just the title, you, you, you can discern that there's humor in the play, right? <laughs> um, but, <laughs> um, and uncomfortable moments, as you, as you said. What, uh, how best to talk about your, you know, the serious illnesses that we have? Right. You know, and I, uh, at first, when I talked to people about the idea that I was writing this, it's, it, they felt like it was almost sacrilegious to write, you know, a, a comedy. In many ways, it's a comedy. I think it's pretty evenly balanced. balanced. But, you know, it almost seems sacrilegious to write about cancer, because we're all affected by it, you know. And then once you see the play, you feel completely different. You realize it's not just about prostate cancer. It's about the human condition. So I'm, you know, I, fi- I figured I could do that with prostate cancer. I'm working on, on a play right now that I've been on for a couple of years, about four years, and it's Alzheimer's the Musical. And that should push some buttons, you know. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine, yeah. <laughs> but, Alzheimer's but I, the Musical. I feel like I can write it because my mom had Alzheimer's, so so did my grandmother. And there was, I mean, I think humor was the thing that kept me, you know, as the primary caregiver. It's the thing that kept me in the game with my own mother to, to see the funny parts of it, you know, and the very touching parts of it. Mm. And a woman who'd been, you know, absolutely brilliant, you know, mentally alert, and then wasn't. It's such a cruel disease. It really takes the essence oh. of a person away. Yeah. No true words spoken, Tom. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to get into uh, the new book, uh, Wacko's City of Fun Carnival. By the way, uh, you can uh, you can learn more about A Slight Discomfort at aslightdiscomfort.com, which is the website. Oh, I, I forgot to mention, let's mention this uh, documentary film that's coming up. That's correct. Um, it's out. It's in, in uh, screening venues uh, across the country, Tribeca, London Film Festival, Sundance Film Festival. And December is sort of the telling time, and hopefully the, the documentary, and it's called Buying Time, uh, will be picked up at one of the festivals. I had a chance to see it, and the, the director of the documentary, uh, Patrick Selvage, uh, came to Denmark, and when he saw the play at an international level, he went back and spent, you know, like 30 days redoing the entire documentary, and it sings. It's, it's, uh, it has the same sort of feeling that the play does. It's funny, and it's somber, you know, and we get to see each other, you know, ourselves in it and each other in the play. Mm. And you can see a trailer for this film on that website, a slight discomfort dot com. Uh, by the way, the uh, the website for the for Jeff Metcalf is wjmetcalf.com. The new book is a novel, but it's uh, based very much on Jeff Metcalf's uh, life. 
um, and the old saying, you just can't make this stuff up, right? You, Jeff, you, you live this. Um, you, you actually ran away and joined a carnival. We'll learn about that. Waco City of Fun Carnival is the book. It's out from TKE Inc. The King's English is uh, publishing this. Uh, we'll have more with Jeff Metcalf following this break. UPR is made possible today with a program day sponsorship from Joyce Kincaid and David Lancey of Hyde Park in celebration of Logan's poet Mae Swenson, who was born on this day in 1913 and who graduated from USU's Department of English in 1934. Did you know that robots can help children develop skills to work and learn together? Researchers have found that when interacting with educational robots, even those designed for solo use, children will invite friends and peers to play the games and complete the activities with their classmates. Using a smartphone app, the small robots can teach nearly any academic skill. What's more, language translation technology can help young students who are not yet proficient in English to participate, allowing these students to learn in the classroom at the same speed as their English-speaking peers. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in December of last year. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the Utah writer Jeff Metcalf. He teaches at the University of Utah, teaches playwriting and uh, and writing uh, for the English department and uh, the honors program there. He's author previously of a, a memoir called Requiem for the Living, also a book called Backcast, his experiences um, with, uh, with therapy for, for men with uh, cancer. Uh, fly fishing, right, Jeff Metcalf? Yes, absolutely. It's a collection of fly fishing essays that started out as uh, sort of a book that I thought I'd be writing about my journey through cancer, and there are really only two stories in there about cancer, and the rest are about a wonderful life growing up. And um, it's a funny book, and I think it's a really good read. In fact, if anybody reads it and doesn't laugh, I'll take him to dinner someplace. Okay, very good. So you can report to us, and he'll and Jeff Metcalf will take you to dinner. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the latest book, Wacko City of Fun Carnival. Uh, before we get into that, uh, just uh, maybe some anecdotes from Requiem for the Living to illustrate um, the, the uniqueness, in a way, of your family and, and your experiences. Um so uh, you your your grandmother would would tell tales of silkies in oh, this yeah. is Ireland, right? Yeah, I I uh, it, it was interesting growing up. I grew up really in a family of storytellers. My grandmother, my mother's mother, uh Rosie Dugan was a phenomenal storyteller and every Sunday she was devoutly Catholic and every Sunday we'd have corned beef and cabbage in in the the hallway of our, our uh, tenant apartment building in in New York, and you know she'd invite you know people to come in and just eat, and she'd tell stories, and she told stories about silkies, about the mythological, or she would argue not, you know, sea maidens that came up onto land to find themselves, you know, 
human husbands. I mean, it's just alluring. So I promised her someday I'd go to Ireland, and I ended up going to Ireland and riding a motorcycle across Ireland in my 20s as a result of her storytelling, and I like to believe that some of that rubbed off on me. Mm, Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, So apparently Cary Grant uh, drove you home one time? Well, actually, it was Clark Gable. Was it Clark Gable? Yeah, Clark Gable was in in Holland. We were living there at the time and staying at this uh, hotel. It was called the Castile, which was actually kind of a castle, and we had lived there when we first moved to Holland. And my mom sent me over to get his autograph. I had no idea who he was, um, and I just knew he was the guy with the big ears. And he had his son there, uh, adopted son from Kate Spreckles. Uh, and uh, I ended up playing with the kid, and it was it got to be very late, and I knew I had to get home. And Clark Gable actually drove me back to my house, and I, I was going to catch hell from my parents. And when I rang the front doorbell and my mother opened it, she actually fainted when she saw Clark Gable. <laughs> and my mom was a New Yorker that was very pushy and tough. And, you know, here's Clark Gable standing there. I still had no idea who he was, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, I've told that story. It, Tom, it's interesting because I've told that story to my wife for years. And then about 15 years ago, when we moved from a house out in the south end of the valley close to the university, I found the signature from his desk. It was from the desk of Clark Gable. And I said, look. And she said, okay, I will never doubt you again. Because <laughs> I've had just this remarkable life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one more anecdote. Um, you um, chaperoned a couple of high school journalists to an interview uh, given by death row inmate. Absolutely. John Albert Taylor, we got the only, it was a, uh, our high school newspaper uh, at Valley High School, we got the only interview with John Albert Taylor before he was uh, executed, uh, and he granted us an interview uh, because <clears throat> he felt like he understood the kids that went to the school. So we went into death row, which was a terrifying experience, and interviewed him, and it became kind of an international story. Mm. Uh, so, um, Waco's City of Fun uh, Carnival, um, you're, you're saying this is mostly, if not all, your experiences? Why a novel? I'll tell you what. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Ron Carlson, who I think is one of the country's uh, finest humorists. What he says, everything I write about is true, even the stuff I make up. <laughs> so, um, I ran away from home. Uh, and it sounds it's really interesting, because when I was writing this book, I would give my wife sections to read, you know, and I've been married. It depends on who you ask. Lana's always a year off one way or the other, but we'll have been married 37 years this January. And she'd read it and she'd say, did this really happen to you? You've never told me this part. Well, you don't have to say much when you tell people you join a carnival. It's like, yeah, I did. I ran away and joined a carnival, and people go, oh, my Uncle Frank was going to do that. And when I was growing up, I thought about running away and joining a carnival. And you pretty much let them take care of the conversation. So a lot of the the dark sort of stuff, I really didn't have to talk about and didn't. But I would say that, yes, let me just say this, that a great deal of it is based on my own experience. Um, but it's like a poker hand. I'm not going to tell you because the stuff that you think <laughs> probably isn't true is true. And the stuff that you think is true probably isn't true. Mm. So, um, but it was nice to put it in the world. Uh, I've wanted to write this book for the longest time. And when I started it, um, 
it was so much fun to go back and fall in love to be a 15-year-old, try to find that 15-and-a-half-year-old voice and fall in love again, you know, and be in love at 15-and-a-half with a old woman, an older woman, a mysterious older woman who was almost 19. <laughs> right. <laughs> that kind of love is special. So the main character, is it Hube, for short for Hubert? Hub. Hub, Hub, oh, Hub, okay. Short um, for Hubert. So, Hub. so Hub, okay. Um, so how did how did Hub come to be in the carnival? Well, a couple things. That The first chapter of the novel is, is like, I think, two paragraphs long. And it talks about a sequence of events that were like this chain reaction. Um, there was a... Uh, a beer store, actually. I mean, in the real world, it was beer, but there was this gas, uh, gas and go here that there was kind of a compact that if you wanted to buy, you were underage and wanted to buy beer, you go in and slide it under your jacket and go up to the front and tell the the owner what you had, and he'd charge you, and you'd buy a pack of gum and pay for the beer and the gum. Well, so Hub or me in this case. Uh, went up and they had changed owners and this guy pulled off a sh- uh, pulled out a sawed-off shotgun and told me I could drink it in jail. So that set in motion, you know, a series of events uh, which led to me, uh, or I'm going to say hub from now on, mm-hmm. so I don't get it mixed up, being in trouble with the law and having to run away. And that's essentially what happened. He was afraid he'd em- uh, end up in state school, a juvenile, you know, detention center. So he took off, uh, and it was a seriously silly mistake, but all the pieces added up to a perfect storm, so that set him in motion. It took off in a cop car. Yeah, yeah, and let's say, <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question. Okay. <laughs> um, but it sure moved fast. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Now, as you say, you know, 15-year-old, Boys maybe not going to make great decisions, especially under stress like that. Being oh, in yeah. being in juvie would have been less worrying, I imagine, for the parents. Uh, rather than out in the carnival, they don't know where he is, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the only person Hub talks to in the novel is his sister. He's afraid, you know. Well, he knows he can't go home because the police will be looking for him. And that'll be the first thing. There's a girl that's brought in in book that happens to know who he is, and he's afraid that this young woman's going to mention his name, and that's what makes him leave the police station. And he's going to run away and then sees, you know, this Ford Galaxy police car with the keys in it and decides that maybe he'll just take that. Mm. And uh, anyway, uh, he was afraid to tell his parents because he was certain that they would, you know, mention where he was so he told his sister he's on the run and not until about a quarter way through the novel does he tell tell her that he's with a carnival moving around mm. now how does one as you meant as you said you you mentioned i i ran away and joined a carnival and that'll produce a lot of stories from people who almost or thought about it or, or whatever. oh yeah uh but, but a lot of those people i imagine thought about it right so uh, oh yeah so how how do you join a carnival well the, the uh this is the me part. I found an ad in the newspaper that uh, was looking for carnies, carnival workers, and in the day it was twenty dollars a day, which was really good pay. Like the 
average kind of wage bag and groceries maybe would have been a buck thirty-five or something like that. So you know, twenty dollars a day sounded like a fortune, and I realized it'd be on the move, and nobody could track me down if they did, if they didn't know where I was. And this guy would pay cash, you know, every two weeks. And I thought, this is for me. So I actually signed up in uh, Payson, Utah, with this traveling caravan and worked with him. It turned out you work like 18 hours a day, though. Mm. So it turned out to be like <laughs> way under minimum wage. And it was it was pretty shady. There were no uh, guidelines to protect protect you as a worker. I mean, half the guys on the cruise there had missing fingers. Mm. It was scary. It was not a place for a 15-and-a-half-year-old kid. So some of the stereotypes are true, I guess. Oh, yeah. Shadiness, kind of under the table sort of a thing. Exactly. And, you know, there was no place to sleep, so I slept underneath trailers. Uh, I think the first three days I ate nothing but uh, popcorn kernels and cotton candy. And, uh, I mean, it was a tough life. And I came back with, uh, I came back with, uh, a bunch of uh, scars from being in disagreements with cowboys. Um, but I was kind of accepted into this family. I mean, you know, time is a, a wonderful thing for a writer to get a chance to sort of, you know, let a story breathe. Well, I let this story breathe for 55 years. Mm. And when I started in it, I probably wrote it in record time. I'd say, uh, less than six months it to- took me to write the novel. So this was at least a, this was growing up. This was coming of age in, in a very it, it unusual setting. It certainly is a coming of age piece. Yeah. Um, one of the reviewers talked about uh, used the phrase "it takes a village." In this case, literally, and there there you know some tenderness absolutely uh, here among some of these people to to take you under their wing. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I realized, you know, writing this just just once again how deeply influenced by certain teachers that I encountered in my life that made a difference. I had an English teacher named Mrs. Nielsen um, who really taught me how to read. I mean, we were a family of books growing up. We all read and loved to read. You know, I was uh, a fan of the Hardy Boys series and you know, you know, autobiographical novels of books about, you know, Eisenhower and great sports athletes and stuff like this. But the books that one reads in high school, she taught me, she could tell that I loved to read. And I wasn't a particularly good student, but she used to say, you know, I'm thinking of teaching this book. Will you read it and tell me what you think? So she included me in the class, but also you know, gave me great books, Lord of the Flies, Fahrenheit 451, Catcher in the Rye. And, um, you know, I took those those books and read them, and, and I, I could see a larger world. So when I joined the carnival, it was, I thought it would be a very romantic thing, you know. It would be a really cool story to tell later on, and it just so happened the, the carnival worker that uh, sort of took me under his wings happened to be a reader, which is unbelievable. Um, he was highly tattooed, and when I first met him, I said those were amazing tattoos, and he looked at me and said, they're skin illustrations. And I realized he had read Ray Bradbury's Illustrated Man, and I said, my God, you read the Illustrated Man? And he, and he said, I'm a reader. 
And I thought, isn't that a great lesson about life? You get these surprises. You have these judgments you make about people before you get to know them. So he was the one who really schooled me inside the carnival. The, ju- those judgments, we all make them, right? But that would we just do. especially be true of uh, in the carnival, right? You'd Oh, there's no question about stereotypes, it. Think, and you'd work you know past the judgments this. one would have made in those days um, was probably pretty accurate. I mean, I'd say half to three quarters of the people, you know, uh, in the carny were people that were running away from something or to something, and probably carried, you know, records with them. But it's interesting because you know uh, we used to follow rodeos around, and and there was no love lost between the carnies and the cowboys, and that was always a, 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 a you know it, it it was always an ignitable fifty gallon drum of gasoline with everybody holding a bic lighter. Something was going to always happen. So you traveled, you know, you always travel with another carny if you were you know walking around the fairgrounds because we shared the fairgrounds. Mm. Was that uh, was competition for money, or, or was that just tradition? Why you why you guys uh, didn't like each other? Oh, it was, I th- you know, actually, I think it was pretty symbiotic in terms of money. Went, I mean, when the rodeo was done, you know, they made their money, and then everybody come over to the carnival. But it was just that they felt like we were second class citizens; that mm-hmm. we were, um, you know, really, uh, you know, a plague. To the community, I mean, we looked different. We didn't ride bulls or broncos, or you know, we worked, you know, machinery. We worked machinery and sold stuff on the midway, and uh, you know, uh, what they thought of us in, in ways was probably true that all of us had passed. But we would make the same argument too. Mm. And you're all pretty young. I mean, I think probably their oldest person at the carney was big heavy and. I think he was really old. He was probably in his early fifties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would, it would seem. Uh, but but some of the people in the carnival have been there for years and years. I suppose, right? Started very young. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And by years and years, I would say, you know, I mean, it's really a different lens you look through it at, at sixteen. You know, to think at sixteen, you think almost a nineteen-year-old young girl is, you know, God, just a woman. You know, and and she is, but you just realize how immature you are and how young you are. But there were people that were lifers with uh, Wacko City Fun Carnival. Mm. Uh, you mentioned, uh, in the, or Hub mentions in the book, that uh, he feels like it's you know after the newness wears off and it's it's the same routine, you know, town to town, Evanston, Rollins, et cetera, et cetera. He feels like he's trapped in a dream, and uh, one of the things that sort of saves his sanity uh, is is his journal yeah yeah uh hub's sister gives him um a journal she packs his kit for him when he takes off and his friend delivers it to him and he keeps writing in this journal and uh that's where he finds that's where he works things out because it is an endless dream you know sort of you know a town for three days pick up move go to the next town it's the same you know, wrote sort of drill every place. And where he was able to sort of figure himself out and unravel stuff is in his journal. And I actually did have a journal from that period. Uh, I'm, I've, I've kept notes of stuff, and I have a, a journal that my sister gave me that, I mean, you know, I had for years until I lost it about 10 years ago. Somehow it got lost in, in a shuffle. 
But it was really interesting to look at that periodically and see how just how how much of the angst I was writing through because the written word was there. Hmm. There's a there's a through line. I'm guessing you're you're a writer now. Yeah. And I actually I actually think that I started my writing career in the third grade. And it was funny because I was the pen pal. We were living overseas. We were living in Holland at the time. And I was the pen pal for our class for a uh, a sister school in England. So I got to write these marvelous tales uh, for third graders in England. And that was the beginning of it. I think my first collection is called Tarzan Darts and Other Friends. <laughs> and I still have that, if you can imagine this, Tom, I still have that journal with all these wild stories in it. You know, Tarzan fights the one-eyed gorilla, a, a classic in third-grade literature. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it. Sounds like it. Uh, let's uh, let's take another break. We're talking with Jeff Metcalf, talking about his new novel, Wacko City of Fun Carnival. Uh, in which uh, the protagonist, Hub, um, through a series of circumstances, runs away, joins the carnival. Uh, It's a fantasy that a lot of young people have. He uh, actually did it. Jeff Metcalf did this, and many of the things in the novel are are true-life adventures that Jeff Metcalf actually uh, had. Um, Wacko City Fun Carnival is uh, being published by TKE Inc. It's from the King's English, and it's uh, out and available now. Uh, more with uh, Jeff Metcalf following this break. If you're feeling a little fatigued by this spring's actual news, here's a more fun question to consider. What's your favorite wait, wait, don't tell me moment from the last 20 years? Here at Utah Public Radio, we want to thank all of you for standing with us and supporting our fundraising efforts during difficult times. Even in the midst of a global pandemic, you make Utah Public Radio possible. As a small token of our gratitude, we're offering Wait, Wait, 20, the best of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me to all of our supporting members for free. Take a break from the news cycle and just kick back and laugh along with Peter Sagal, Carl Castle, Bill Curtis, Mo Rocca, Tom Bodet, and all of your favorites. You can claim this downloadable digital album by sending an email to me, katie.swain at usu.edu, and I'll send you your own unique download code. You can use it to download the whole collection directly onto your computer or phone. This is just our way of saying thank you, no strings attached. We hope you enjoy this collection of the best moments from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me as much as we do. And thanks. If you own a business and are trying to find ways to connect to consumers, consider Utah Public Radio as a resource for helping to educate our listeners about your services. UPR members care about their communities, the economy, and are aware of the need to support local retailers. When your business is mentioned on UPR, your clients know you support their source for programs like Marketplace, Freakonomics, and TED Radio. Contact me, debbie.andrew at usu.edu, to find out how we can work together to support public radio and your business. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in December of last year. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We reached our last segment with Jeff Metcalf. He's an award-winning writer and teacher, as well as director of a nonprofit dedicated to granting underserved populations access to higher education. He lives in Salt Lake City, where he teaches literature and playwriting in the English Department and the Honors College at University of Utah. He's author previously of Requiem for the Living, also uh, Backcast, and a play, A Slight Discomfort, um, which is uh, which is running, I think, now premiered and running now in Denmark. 
Um, it's about his prostate cancer. Now, a new novel about his experiences with the carnival. In his teens, uh, Jeff Metcalf ran away and enjoyed the carnival, and the protagonist here, Hub, uh, does the same. So Jeff Metcalf, uh, want to uh, have us meet a few of the uh, fascinating characters in the carnival. Before we do that, you talked in the last segment about, uh, as a young man, being very uh, into reading, being very influenced by some great writers. And there's a scene earlier in the novel where Hub uh, is out with, it seems to be a father's and son's outing. In the snow, the, the, the sons, the boys... Uh, go out, and uh, at this point, they're lost. And uh, so Hub decides to uh, tell an inspirational story from from Jack London. <laughs> yeah. just, anyway, the boys are going on a, a camping trip. His best friend, Smitty, who is the, you know, a very prominent can- uh, character in the novel, They've gone out. Uh, their father's going to set up camp while they go fish in the high Uinta country and come back, and it starts to snow. It's a fall father and son trip, and they get lost, and he decides to tell a story, a Jack London story about a man who is trapped uh, in a snowstorm up in the Yukon area, and he's starting to freeze, and he starts to build a fire, and and he has one match to get the fire going in, and uh, the fire goes out, and the only thing he can think about doing is getting close to his dog and then, you know, having to kill his dog and then climb into the skin. Anyway, it's called To Build a Fire. And he tells this story as they are freezing and trying to find their way back to the camp. And it just, you know, it's from his own reading, and he thinks the story will, will boast of them up and, and give them warmth and stuff like that. And, of course, it does just the opposite, you know. So sometimes one has to choose, pick and choose very carefully the stories that they tell about the books that they have read. <laughs> I think we've probably all been there. We start out, oh, this will be good, and then, uh, oh, nope, it wasn't good. In, in, the, in the middle, <laughs> Hub tries to... quickly. In the, in the middle, Hub tries to divert their attention. Let's talk about something else, but they keep coming back. They're, they're fascinated by the story. The story is not appropriate for the situation. <laughs> I, I was, That's right. I, I, I laughed quite a bit there. Uh, so tell us about some of the people in the, in the carnival, maybe starting with uh, Wacko himself. This is Wacko City of Fun Carnival. Yeah. Um, the, 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 that's actually, uh, Wacko was an interesting character and he fit that name. He, he reminded me, you know who he reminded me of? He reminded me of Jack Nicholson and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. There's no question about it. He, and, uh, he, he was short and he was stocky and he was muscular. And, and, um, there was this sense in meeting him that, you know, he, he had the deepest, deepest green eyes that I'd ever seen on anybody, and the hair that it looked like he combed with a blender. Um, and he and he just, he, there was a dangerous movement to him. It was kind of uh, almost bull-like. There was no delicacy to him. And he was a man of very few words, and he was, you know, uh, he, was a, he was a brawler. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a guy, he, well, think about it. He had to manage a bunch of carnies, all of them, you know, potentially insane, as he would see it. Um, and he ran the tight ship on the carnival, uh, and I, I was terrified, actually, of him the whole time I was at the carnival. There's no question about it. 
you know, like at any moment he would explode. He certainly is the first character I met there. Then some of the workers that had been there a long time, Frenchie and Big Heavy uh, and Wart, they all had names that they had earned. And honestly, I remember having breakfast with Big Heavy Frenchie and uh, Wart one morning uh, in Mapleton, Utah, at a cafe. They'd taken me in to buy me breakfast. And between the three of them, they didn't have a complete set of fingers. You know, all Mm. of them happened to be missing a finger from some sort of industrial accident that handle. I mean, these days you would never have any of those problems in a carnival. But in the old days, it was it was rough. Sometimes, you know, the machines would, like I worked a baby octopus for a while, and sometimes we'd get a surge and it'd be hard to turn it off. So these kids would be spinning around almost airborne. Their parents were yelling at us and we're trying to shut it down. Uh, so these characters made real impressions on me because once you got to know them, once you became part of that family, the Carney family, they would watch out for you, and there was an initiation rite uh, that I had to go through once I was accepted by the families. Initiation rites? Yeah. Hmm, interesting. Um, there, were, there were midgets. Yeah, we had a couple, and they wanted to be called midgets, uh, which is not the proper uh, identifier now. They were fascinating, and there were three of them, the brothers, uh, two brothers and then uh, a sister that worked with um, our gypsy fortune teller, Zola. And they were great guys. I mean, I got to, I, I got to learn a lot about their lives and where they had come from and what it was like, and they were always kind of the subject of curiosity and uh, you know, the cowboys would make fun of them, and, uh, you know, we always tried to protect them and look out for them. Now, in the novel, there had been a freak show. That's, uh, the, the, I guess they had been hired for, for that. That's right. And that was, uh, I, I hate to say that, but that's completely fictional. Okay. Um, you know, whether they had or hadn't, I'm not sure about that, mm-hmm. but... They had strung along from another carnival, and you know I'd, I'd heard that they, there was there were freak there was a freak show at this other carnival, sort of like you imagine with Barnum and Bailey in twenty or thirties, and whether they had been part of it or not, I'm uncertain. I guess that's why I hate to ask answer questions about you know whether this really happened or this didn't, mm-hmm. because you know it was a device that was needed to serve the story at that time, and it mm-hmm. seemed. Pretty real, mm-hmm. but uh, we, uh, that was a thing, right? Uh, carnival. Some carnivals did have freak shows. Oh, absolutely, no mm-hmm. question about it. No question about it. You know, and when we went to the big carnies where they mixed around, some of them still. And you have to realize that this is in the early '60s that I took off. You know, that stuff was not frowned upon. It was encouraged. You know, to and and there was sort of a. Um, there was sort of great value in being a freak in terms of the carnival families. You know, you were a money raiser if you were a freak. It's interesting, there was a, a graduate student at the University of Utah who happened to have been with a carnival, a circus, and when they found out that she, you know, had that in her background, she wrote a really wonderful book called The Electric Woman, I think it is, and the two of us got together and started talking. And it was like a foreign language. They're just expressions that were in the carnival, that, you know, that 
two carnivals or a person and, you know, two people working with the circus would understand, like a butcher. You know, you think of a butcher as a person that cuts meat. A butcher is the person that sold stuff on the midway. So we'd have this conversation, and they did, in fact, have, you know, sword swallowers and, you know, uh, freaks with, with the circus that she traveled with. So, it, you know, up until probably, you know, the 70s, I'd still say they had them going on. Mm. Uh, you mentioned the fortune teller, Zola. Yeah. Uh, I- interesting woman. Um, and I was fascinated by her, uh, called her the, her shill, Annabelle. Yeah, who, her, who, yeah. Who looked angelic, uh, innocent, and, and then your friends told, told, or at least told Hub, uh, that's the shill, that's, that's the person who brings the people into. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Into she looks for the marks, you know. I mean, but really, if you think about it, um, and I'll say this, based on the time that I was there, it's a hustle. The minute that door opens, you know, the carnival and the hours begin, it's a hustle on all levels to sell stuff, you know. Uh, the games, for the most part, over the years, the early years, were rigged. In other words, you've got the three balloons and you've got, you know, two darts, you know, three darts, three balloons. What you would do is you'd underinflate the balloons and you'd give them dull darts. So you'd throw a dart and it hit a balloon and it'd either pop or it'd bounce off. Um, the big milk bottles, those heavy, you know, metal milk bottles, they were always faced at an angle so the ball might hit the front but would deflect off. I mean, it's interesting. So Zola had really, you know, had, uh, you know, somebody that looked for the marks there, and she had a great gig. Uh, since we used to follow around the same circuit, if you followed the same circuit, she would predict, you know, if you happen to be pregnant and wanted to know if you're going to have a girl or a boy and this was before you know uh sonar taking you know scopes to see if you had a boy or a girl um she would meet with you do this sort of chanting thing and tell you for example that you were going to have a baby girl and she would pay 10 times what what you put down to find that out which was two dollars and she'd give you a receipt get your name give you a receipt but in this big, cool-looking book she had, antique book, she'd write just the opposite down. So think about this. If you did, in fact, have a baby girl, you wouldn't come back to her. And if you did, in fact, have a boy, you'd come back, and you'd have your note, and she'd look up the number and your name, and it would be just the opposite. And, you, and she, you know, she'd look at it and say, no, right here I wrote this. I don't think she ever lost a dime. Mm. And and she actually re- read my fortune which was uncanny at the time. Stuff I was convinced she was a complete, you know, phony and a number of those things came through. Yeah, as, know, I, as I was reading that, I was thinking having interviewed you a few times, read your books, I was thinking this is pretty accurate <laughs> what she's saying. It right? is and it yeah. was and actually I have uh, I've had my fortune read twice, once for an article for a magazine, and it was also very uncanny. And then another time when Zola told me, you know what my future would look like, uh, and I would have wagered everything I had on it, Tom, that it wouldn't wouldn't come close, mm-hmm. and uh, so much of it happened. It wasn't simple stuff like sometimes you're sad and sometimes you're happy. Oh, my gosh, she's got that right. Wow, she's great. It was stuff like you will be married two times. And it's like I didn't even have a girlfriend at the time. You know? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that'll never happen. 
So uh, it was quite an adventure, and I'm so excited. The book's finally on the market after all these years. And I'll tell you, I did my first reading the other day, and it was nice to take it out and see people laugh where I was looking for laughs. And I'll tell that to your audience, and you've got a wonderful audience, uh, that if they don't like the book, I'll give them a, a fruitcake for Christmas. All right. <laughs> Very good. That's a threat. Good. That's a threat. <laughs> a fruitcake. It'll be like a doorstop. Yeah, there you go. Um, so that we're near the end of uh, end of time. The book is Wacko City of Fun Carnival. It's published by TKE Inc. from the King's English uh, Bookshop. Uh, it's out and available uh, now. You can uh, find out more about Jeff Metcalf at wjmetcalf.com. You can find out more about his play, which is playing in Denmark now, A Slight Discomfort at a slightdiscomfort.com. Uh, so, Jeff Metcalf, you say you're working on a, on a musical about Alzheimer's. I am. I'm working on that. And then I also wanted to, to say something before we got off the air. It's time, but... Uh, another book of mine, and it's a Christmas book. It's called The Great Christmas Tree Lot Fiasco. And it is a comedy about uh, Christmas with a very dis- dysfunctional Metcalf family. So I've got some things coming out here. I'm working on a couple of new novels uh, and, of course, the play about Alzheimer's, the musical. And I hope to have the great privilege of coming back and talking to you and your um, wonderful audience about that in the future. All right, we'll we'll plan on it. Um, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jeff Metcalf. Tom Williams, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure being on the show. And thanks everyone for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and utahhumanities.org improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.